Well, over 100 million people will probably tune in to watch the Super Bowl uh, this afternoon. For my entire life, when somebody has asked me, uh, you know, who are you rooting for in the Super Bowl? My answer has been uh, several different things. Uh, you know, sometimes it's, I, I don't really have a, I'm not really rooting for anybody. You know, I just want it, I hope it's a good game, it, 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 that it keeps my interest the entire time. Uh, sometimes, you know, in the last decade or so, it's probably been, uh, you know, anybody but the Patriots, right? I mean, you know, we don't want somebody else can win for crying out loud for uh, my entire life you know the the kind of the hometown team that I root for has never been uh, in the Super Bowl and this afternoon that that changes you know and so uh, that's going to be exciting and uh, I know many of you are excited to see that as well, and, and uh, you're looking forward to, to watching and, and uh, rooting for the, the Chiefs to, to win. Uh, uh, most of us will at some point uh, tune into uh, that game and watch a little bit of it anyway, even if we're not football fans, uh, maybe because the Chiefs are in the Super Bowl. Uh, some of us will tune into that game uh, just to watch the Super Bowl commercials, right? I mean, every year there's a lot of discussion about what's going to be the next great Super Bowl commercial. I was thinking this last week, trying to, to remember some of my favorites. And, and when I looked them up, you know, some of my favorite commercials that I remembered, I realized how old I was because these commercials are from a long time ago. You know, none of the newer commercials really stuck in my mind. I don't, I'm not sure what that means. But uh, in 2003, there was a, a Super Bowl commercial trying to sell Reebok shoes that had a, an office linebacker in the commercial. Maybe you remember this, sort of out of place. This guy's super excited to be in his office, would just kind of randomly tackle somebody in the middle of the workplace, all, all to sell Reebok shoes. You go back a little further to like 1984, there was a Wendy's commercial where these, these three uh, older ladies were introduced and they were asking, you know, this very important question, where's the beef? Maybe some of you remember uh, that marketing campaign from uh, the fast food chain Wendy's. Uh, you fast forward about a decade, uh, you get another fast food uh, company, McDonald's, trying to sell a Big Mac with two baskets basketball stars during the Super Bowl, uh, Michael Jordan and Larry Bird playing this game of horse, you know, off the billboard and off the bridge and all these crazy basketball shots all to sell, again, another hamburger. And, and maybe some of those Super Bowl commercials from uh, years gone by stick in your mind. Certainly there are uh, advertising slogans that stick in our mind. If I, if I gave you a slogan, you'd probably be able to tell me the product that they were trying to peddle with that slogan, like, uh, it melts in your mouth, not in your hand. M&M, sure. Or the quicker picker-upper. Yeah, bounty paper towels, right? Or if you care enough to send the very best. Yeah, Hallmark cards. You know, these things stick in our minds, and we remember these advertising slogans. Now, it's interesting to me, because even though we can remember the commercial and we can remember the advertising slogans, they don't always make an impact in our life. They, they stick in our heads, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not going to choose the, the least expensive paper towel uh, over Bounty, just because I know the advertising slogan. That doesn't necessarily impact 
my life. And I think there are lots of words like that in our lives that we hear and we, you know, they stick in our mind and they, they sort of maybe even draw our interest, but they don't necessarily impact us very much. Are you like me? Have you ever been checking out or, or maybe you, you held the door open for somebody and there's this brief interaction where somebody will say to you, have a blessed day. Have you ever checked out of the grocery store and the, you know, have a blessed day and you kind of like, what, what? You know, just double take because you're wondering if you're like me. I wonder what they mean by that. You know, this word blessed we hear over and over and over. In fact, uh, this afternoon, this evening, after the game, and maybe in interviews before the game, I promise you there will be a player or a coach or four that say, we are just so blessed for this opportunity to be here and to play in this game. And you might wonder, well, what do they really mean by that? It's one of those words that maybe draws our attention, but we're unsure of what somebody actually means. And no wonder, because it's a word we use for all sorts of stuff. You know, we, we use it in all sorts of different situations, from uh, the opportunity maybe for a promotion to uh, when we you know, buy a new car, we say, oh, we're blessed, to beginning a new relationship. This relationship is surely going to be a blessing. It's a word that uh, we use often in church, and, and uh, God has used this word uh, from really the beginning of the story. If you, if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, you'll read about the, the beginning of of sort of the nation of Israel. We're a long ways from that. We're many, 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 many years away from calling this family a nation, but it's the very uh, promise, the first promise of that nation growing. And God is calling this guy by the name of Abram, who will later know him as Abraham. God will change his name in this process. And, And this is the promise that God makes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. He says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you and all your families of the earth in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed." We hear that word bless over and over in this promise to Abram. And you wonder, well, what's he really driving at? As folks who have read the end of the story... We, we, we've not only seen before the cross the story of Abraham and Moses and, and, and Isaac and Jacob and, and all of those families and all of those guys and God growing that nation of Israel, but we've seen the promise culminate in, in Jesus entering the world and we've seen the promise of Jesus go to the cross and be buried in a tomb and be raised on that third day. And so we know that when God spoke to Abram, in you... Because of your family, because of this nation, because of Jesus, all the, all the people of the earth will be blessed. They'll have this opportunity to be a part of my team, to be a member of my family, to, to know me, to be reconciled to me. There's this amazing story of blessing Did you catch, though, that as God promises this blessing to Abram and to his family and to the generation after generation after generation that follows Abram and his family, 
That he said, I'm blessing you so that you might be a blessing to others. Uh, we, there's so many different ways that we have been blessed in our lives, but as followers of Jesus, we have this, we have this blessing that's more important than any of the others. Right? We have this paramount, this primary, this most important, this way, way bigger, better blessing in a relationship with Jesus. And God has blessed us in order that we might be a blessing to others. We can absolutely be a blessing to others. And I think that when Jesus tells this very short story in the middle of this dinner, in the middle of this party, in Luke chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 36, we'll read through verse 50 in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. I, I think he teaches us five steps, five steps to being a blessing to others. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up to Luke chapter 7. We're going to read this, uh, this dinner, about this dinner party and this short story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. As we work our way through these five steps, you're going to notice that these uh, five steps, they, they spell out, uh, this, they're an acronym, they spell out this word bless. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to kind of take an overview, all right? So don't panic when you see five steps. You know, that's a little uh, atypical for us, all right? Nobody panic. You're going to get home in time for the kickoff, all right? It's going to be okay. We're going to kind of take an overview of this acronym that you're going to hear uh, quite a bit in 2020 uh, here at Wallula Christian Church, okay? We want to focus this year on being a blessing to others, and we're going to use this acronym that's not, not, certainly not original to me or to Wallula, but uh, as, as a way to help us remember how to do that, okay? So five steps uh, to how we can be a blessing to others here in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. This is what God's word says. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them on the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more. Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, an interesting setting for this very short story, and and I think it teaches us five steps. Step number one is that we want to begin in prayer. All right, begin in prayer. Now, this is is maybe sort of an obvious place to begin. It's an obvious place to start, and it's a very preacher kind of thing to say, isn't it? Hey, you ought to begin in prayer. Before you do anything, you should really pray about this. And I'm almost reluctant to start here because to be honest, when we say, I want to pray about that, I need to begin, I need to start uh, this process in prayer, it reminds me a little bit of those advertising slogans. Things that sort of stick in our head, but that we don't necessarily allow to impact our life very much. So I'm a member of this uh, this. A group on social media that's called uh, Kansas Pastors or something like that. There's probably uh, a number of somewhere between 50 and 60 pastors, something like this in this group, okay? And so uh, occasionally there'll be a discussion about, hey, you know, what, what, what's your plans for Christmas Eve? You know, kind of those preacher kind of things that we, that we talk about. Not very interesting to anybody else, I suppose, but, you know, these pastors will will talk and discuss back and forth and and I mostly just follow I kind of lurk in the background I, you know that I'm that guy or whatever and I'm reading through this and one day one of the one of the preachers asked well what do you do to pray for your congregation what what steps do you take to pray for your congregation and do you know what the response was that right it was crickets just silent. So very few responses. And I was sort of taken aback by that. I thought, man, why? There's lots of reasons, right? But prayer tends to be one of those things that, that all of us are a little insecure about. I'm a little insecure about my prayer life. I mean, you, 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 it, and rightly so, because it's kind of this growth process. In other words, I don't think you can ever be praying enough sort of idea. And so as followers of Jesus, sometimes we get in this, this, it's one of those things that we sort of get in our head somewhere that I'm not quite spiritual enough because I'm not doing this quite right. I'm not really doing this enough. And, and preachers, uh, believe it or not, are people, right? And so they have some of those same insecurities and nobody really wanted to jump out in this group of other preachers and say, well, I spend 10 minutes a day praying for my congregation and then have somebody say, what's that about? You know, I spend 30 minutes or I spend, you know, who, who wants to be that first person to kind of step out and say that? And secondly, and I'm a little more fearful of, because preachers are people, and I believe that, that our prayer life is a little bit like those advertising slogans. We know we ought to be doing them. Maybe they ought to be impacting our life, but they aren't necessarily. So what keeps us? Because if we took a poll in this room, right, you showed up this morning even on Super Bowl Sunday, right? And so if we took a poll in this room and we asked, should prayer be an important part of your life? There'd be almost a 100% agreement 
that, yeah, I think prayer ought to be an important part of your life. Some of us, to a lesser degree than others, there are some of us in this room who would say, well, it's not been a part of my life you know, before, so I don't know why it would be important now, and we're not quite there yet. We haven't discovered how important that is in our life. And so there'd be some different kinds of answers. That's okay. Hang on. If you're in that camp, if, if that's how you'd respond to that question, hang on. All right? Pay attention a little longer. But most of us would say, yeah, prayer ought to be an important part of our life. And then if we ask that same question that was asked in that group of, of pastors online, there would probably be a similar response We'd be a little slow and a little reluctant to talk about our prayer life because just something keeps each one of us from maybe spending the amount of time and conversation and prayer with our Creator that we know we probably ought to, that we ought to, that we ought to spend a little more time talking with Him, that that ought to be the first place that we start and it's not. And so what keeps us from praying. I want you to consider verses 36 to 38. And as I read this, I just want you to think about the posture of the woman. All right? So just think about that. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought in alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair on her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. All right, the interesting language, okay? And, and sometimes we get in our head that Jesus is eating and we, we picture that, that famous painting of the Last Supper, right? You know, where all 12 disciples are sitting on one side of the booth. That's weird, right? Nobody does that. And they wouldn't have done that. They wouldn't have done that in, in the first century either. They wouldn't have been sitting at a table like we're used to sitting at a table, all right? The table would have been very low to the ground and they would have been kind of kneeling with their feet behind them at this table, all right, and so even though Scripture tells us that this woman was standing behind Jesus, so his feet was you know, kind of sticking out behind him, and, and she was standing behind Jesus, maybe she started standing, and as she's weeping, she realizes that my tears are literally falling on Jesus' feet. And so she starts to wipe the tears on his feet, to wash his feet with her tears with her hair. Now, you know, unless her, you can't do that standing. You know, she's, she's kneeling at Jesus' feet. And we know this because even if she'd never had a haircut, right? And she's just kind of, woo, like this. You know, eventually she's kissing Jesus' feet. You can't do that standing. So the posture of this woman is, is kneeling at Jesus' feet as she washes his feet, as she anoints his feet with the ointment, as she, as she kisses his feet. She has humbled herself. You know, you can't read that description without understanding that she has, she's lowered herself. She's humbled herself before Jesus. Let's just be honest for a minute here as we consider our prayer life. And let me just kind of open my life and my book up to you as I talk about my prayer life for a minute and admit to you 
that one of the reasons that sometimes my prayer life doesn't impact my life in the way that I know it should is because I'm too proud to allow it? Because I I get in a spot, I get in a situation, or maybe it's just an ordinary day when I wake up and I approach that day thinking, I can handle today. I've got it covered. I've got a to-do list made out. I know my strategy to attack that to-do list. I know what things need to be accomplished. And I am capable of accomplishing those things. And sometimes, even when life gets really hard, and there's a, there's a relationship issue, or there's a problem I'm facing, or I'm worried about a, a doctor's appointment, or a diagnosis, or whatever it is, and I still convince myself, it'll be okay, I can handle this, when absolutely I cannot. When I desperately need help, probably from others that I'm refusing to ask for help, and absolutely from my creator, sustainer, redeemer, God, whom I'm also refusing to humble myself before and to seek him. Let's just acknowledge that to have that prayer life, to begin in prayer like we ought to, we have to follow the posture of this woman here in Luke chapter 7. And we have to be willing to lower ourselves, to humble ourselves, to come to Jesus to admit that we need his help. See, I can give you practical tips how to make sure that prayer is a part of your life. And I think we ought to do these things. I think we ought to, we ought to schedule our prayer time. Right? We, ought to, we ought to have a time when we meet with him and we just keep that time. And so we, we spend time in, in his word and we spend time praying to him. We absolutely ought to do those things. We ought to put it on our calendar. We ought to schedule it. We ought to keep a, a list. You know, this, this week at small group, I'd encourage you, maybe just write down those prayer concerns that you hear. Right? We ought to, we ought to maybe be journaling those things. That, that should be a way for us to keep going to God and keep asking and, and keep seeking His help in, in our lives and the lives of the people that are important to us. Yeah, we ought to do that. We ought to be planning our day as we, as we see that to-do list and we think about the places that we'll be and the people that we'll, we'll encounter. We ought to at least be formulating a mental list in our mind of how we can be praying for those people and places and events in our lives. We ought to do that every day as we begin our day. Those practical steps ought to be a part of our everyday lives so that we can, we can do our best to ensure that prayer is a part of our lives. But even if we do those practical things, if we refuse to follow the posture of this woman, our prayer life won't have the impact that it ought to in our lives, in our relationships, in all our decision-making, and all that stuff. Because our posture will just be wrong. We need to begin in prayer, and that means to, to first humble yourself, to admit that we need uh, and seek uh, the help of Jesus. So that's step number one, is to begin in prayer. Step number two is to, to listen to the stories of others. We need to listen well. 
Take a look at verses 39 and 40 here in chapter 7. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. There's a couple of opportunities here in the story for Simon, the host, the Pharisee, to be able to listen well to listen to the stories of others. And in verse 40, uh, this maybe is, is where we would start and say, well, this is the most important uh, place to listen. And, and I, I, I think that, that that's probably true. But it's sort, of, it's sort of one and one A in the opportunity to listen. It's sort of like last week we talked about the, the most important commandments. And, uh, and you know, when, when somebody asked Jesus what's the most important commandments, what did he say? Well, to love God, the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and soul. And the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. We talked about those two commandments last week as we uh, thought about the uh, uh, Good Samaritan. And, and we talked briefly about the fact that you can't separate those two. They're at least one and one A. To love God is to love your neighbor, and to love your neighbor is to love God. And so they can't really be separated. They kind of go together. It's really just this one great commandment, and it's part one and and 1A. They they can't be separated. Well, when we think about listening to people's stories, I I think we're in the same spot. In verse 40, uh, Jesus says to this Pharisee, we know his name, Simon. He said, Simon, I have something to say. And, And Simon at least acknowledged that he needed to hear it. He said, okay, say it, Jesus. And so he's listening to Jesus' teaching. And for sure, we ought to be spending time with him. Part of that prayer life that we need to be building into our life is spending time listening to what God would have us do, hearing from him through his word, spending time in in his presence, allowing the spirit to nudge and to move and to guide us in our lives, all of those things. And we need to listen well to Jesus. And, And that's important. And if you say, well, that's the most important part of listening, I wouldn't disagree with you, but I'd say it's part one of a part one and a part one A. Because where Simon misses the boat completely is verse 39, isn't it? Don't you catch the drift from verse 39 that he doesn't, he's not going to listen to this lady's story at all. He doesn't care why she showed up here. He doesn't care what she's her, uh, seeking from Jesus. He doesn't care you know, any of those things. He's not interested, right? He's just not going to listen to her story. Verse 39 uh, says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In another uh, part of the gospel, Jesus tells a story about uh, a Pharisee and a tax collector. These two guys, it, it sort of sounds like Jesus is telling a bad joke. These two guys go to the temple to pray. Right? One was a tax collector and one was a sinner. Or, or one was a tax collector and one was a Pharisee, right? One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector, a sinner. And he said the, the Pharisee stood up in the middle and he prayed real loud so everybody could hear him. And, and his prayer sort of went like this. Thank God uh, you, you created me a Pharisee instead of, you know, maybe like this guy over here who's a tax collector or that guy over there who, who you know, is, man, he, he was off, you know, the charts last night and, and, and he's a sinner. And, and thank goodness you didn't create me like this, uh, a woman like this, this lady over here, right? This is, you know, Jesus tells this story. Of this guy who's praying like that. Uh, thank goodness I'm, you know, holier than thou. Kind of literally that was his prayer. Right? And then there's a tax collector who's in the back corner who 
his posture again physically is as a picture of his spiritual posture, just like the woman in the stories. Physical posture is a picture of her spiritual posture. And he's humbled himself and he's quietly praying for forgiveness for the sins that he knows present in his life. And Jesus said, you know, even though that, that Pharisee was sort of, sort of shouting his prayer and everybody in the room heard it, you know, just understand, my father, not so much. You know, he was paying attention to the guy in the back corner. Uh, I, I get the feeling that Simon could have been the guy standing up, kind of shouting his prayer out. He, he was not so interested in listening to this woman's story. This guy by the name of David Osberger said one time that being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. They're almost the exact same thing. To be listened to, to be heard, is to be loved to the average person. We need to spend some time just listening well, absolutely to Jesus and absolutely to those around us. Our friends, our neighbors, folks that are exactly like us, folks who are way different than us. We need to listen well. Step number two is to listen to other people's stories. Step number three is to uh, eat with somebody. Just take a look at the passage that we've read so far. What's the setting? Well, it's this dinner party. And Jesus shows up at this dinner party, even though he was invited by somebody that, that he probably didn't want to have all that many conversations with. Right? And that was totally Jesus' M.O., all through the Gospels, uh, you will see him eating with other people. Uh, Sammy kind of gave us a rundown at communion, didn't he, of, of the many times uh, examples. He gave several examples of, of when Jesus ate with somebody. You remember the, the story about this little guy by the name of Zacchaeus who was a tax collector. He climbed up in a tree as Jesus was in this huge parade, this huge crowd of people going through town. He wanted to see Jesus. Jesus gets to that sycamore tree. You remember the song. And he looks up and he said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I'm coming to your house for dinner. Jesus, I, I love him because he just invited himself over for lunch. And he has this lunch with Zacchaeus, this tax collector, and that all the other Pharisees in the crowd kind of trailing along would have had the attitude of Simon. Does he know who he's eating with? Does he understand who, who, is, who he is having lunch with? Oh, what about Matthew? When he calls Matthew, same sort of deal. Matthew was a tax collector as well. He calls Matthew, he says, come follow me. Matthew leaves his tax collecting business, leaves everything he has, and he's following Jesus. But before they hit the road, Matthew throws this party where he invites all his tax collector buddies, all the folks that nobody like Simon would have eaten with and had a party with and said, Jesus, I want you to come to this party with all my friends. And Jesus said, absolutely. And he eats with Matthew and his tax tax collector buddies. And when he has really bad news to break to those closest to him, he breaks that news at what we call the Last Supper, celebrating this feast together, having a meal together. When he reinstates one of the guys who, when he broke that news, said, I'm never going to turn my back on you. And, and Jesus said, before the rooster crows three times, Peter... You're going to deny that you know me? Peter denies three times before the rooster crows on that night when Jesus is arrested and goes to trial. He's broken. 
His spirit is broken. His heart is broken. Peter's never sh- not sure if he can ever live up to Jesus' standard and, and be in relationship with him again. Jesus reinstates him, invites him back into relationship with him at a barbecue on a beach. Jesus sounds like a guy that I want to get to know. He does this over and over and over again, just eats with somebody. You know, there's just something about eating with somebody. Hey, this, this Sunday, it's Super Bowl Sunday, there's a lot going on. It's also, you know, Donut Sunday. You'll hear that occasionally from folks here at Wallula. Hey, first Sunday of the month, it's Donut Sunday. We gotta get there early so we get the ones with sprinkles, whatever the deal is, right? You know, why, why do we have, you know, donuts on a Sunday morning or cookies on a Sunday morning or little treats and coffee on a Sunday morning? Why do we do that? Well, it's not just because we want you to get to a sugar rush, you know? It's not, that's not what we're going for, really. It's just a little bit. When, you have, when you're holding a cookie, maybe a cup of coffee, it's kind of like Linus in the Peanuts cartoons. You know, he always had that blanket. There's just something safe about breaking bread with other people. If you want to move a relationship from acquaintance to friendship, the fastest way to do that is probably by having dinner with them. There's just something about building relationship through the breaking of bread. You read scripture, you're going to read about people eating together, breaking bread together. Certainly that's true in the early church. Certainly that's true in the life of Jesus. We we ought to spend some time just eating with somebody, building that relationship with somebody. That's step number three. Step number four is, is we ought to serve. Jesus launches into the story in verse 41. Uh, uh, he's talking to Simon and he says, a certain moneylender had two debtors who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, they canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. It's this really uh, unique short story about a lender and two debtors. One guy owes, you know, 50 bucks, another owes 500 bucks. Jesus said, if, if, if the lender forgives both of these debts, which one of those guys is going to love the lender more? And Simon said, well, probably the one with the bigger debt. Jesus said, absolutely. You know, this woman is right to come and seek me out and to humble herself because, you know, she needs forgiveness. Vince Annanucci is a preacher and an author, and he has this uh, theory that, that if you want to find really radical, extreme followers of Jesus, then you want to start with really radical and extreme sinners. Because when they find Jesus, they, they live their life to extreme anyway, and they're going to be extreme followers of Christ. He points to guys in Scripture like Zacchaeus, like Saul, who becomes Paul, who were extreme sort of sinners and then became extreme followers of Jesus, who, who went from hoarding and seeking and being greedy to giving away all that they had, from killing and arresting Christians to making Christians, from one extreme to another. And he said, you can't really expect somebody who's not an extreme sinner to be an extreme follower of Jesus. 
I think there are a few flaws in this theory. The first flaw is, I'm not sure what an extreme sinner is. I suppose that in comparison to the right person, somebody might say, well, Lance's life story is not one of extreme sin. He's never been really like addicted to drugs. He wasn't a drug dealer. He hasn't murdered anybody. You know, these things that someday, you know, none of that stuff is present in my life. But, I, you know, we haven't unpacked all the, all the dirt, all the grime, all the junk that I'm in desperate need of forgiveness for. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God and is in desperate need of a Savior. And every one of us should seek to be that extreme follower of Jesus. When I read through verses 41 to 47, man, they weigh heavy on my heart because I... I, I guess I'm so scared to someday, someday be described as a guy who loved little. Right? We want to love in a big way. We want to seek to serve in a big way. The second flaw, I suppose, is that love is a choice. We get to decide. We don't want to be described as loving little. We want to be described as loving big. Let's look at step number five, which is to share your story. Verse 48 says, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. It parallels with verse 50 when he says, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A couple different places Jesus had to say, no, her sins are forgiven. She's in relationship with me. Her life has gone from, from the old to the new. It's been transformed. It's been changed because in verse uh, 48 is where we sometimes get stuck or 49. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives? We wonder how can that life be new? How can that life be changed? Every one of us has lived this story if we're a follower of Jesus. We've gone from that, that old junk that we packed away and it's been forgiven and it's been put away that, that when God looks at our story, he sees Jesus' story. And that's the story that we ought to share. It's like in John chapter 9, Jesus meets this blind guy and you can just see this tr- progression in the blind man's life. It begins with the blind guy saying, I'm blind, I can't see. And then he said, well, Jesus, I met Jesus and he put mud on my eyes. And then when he wiped that mud away, I could see. I was blind. I met Jesus, and now I see. A simple way to tell our story in Jesus is that same way. What was my life before I met Jesus? How, is, how has he changed it, and it, how is he changing my life, and what's it like now? It's a simple, short way to remember our story. And, and I challenge you this week to go home and to think about that. What difference is Jesus making in your life? And to figure out how you can tell that story in, in 30 seconds, in an elevator ride. Okay, how can you tell that story of what was I like before Jesus, and when did I meet him, and now what's my life like? We need to share our story well. You think about those advertising slogans, maybe the most famous of all time. This was a long time ago. In 1988, there was a shoe company that came out with a slogan. They said, just do it. What shoe company? Right? We know this, this slogan from all those years gone by, right? 30 years or whatever it's been. We still know that slogan, just do it. Just do it is one of the most memorable slogans of all time that sticks with us. 
You know what it doesn't do? It doesn't typically impact our life. Most of us aren't just doing it. And as you know, that one of the rages in the fashion world today, it's hard to tell that I follow this stuff. I don't. I just read this this week, okay? There's this new fashion uh, segment in the world today that's active leisure wear. In other words, I want to wear the exercise clothes. I just don't want to exercise. I like the idea of being active, but I'm actually going to leisure. You know, and so much of the time, too much of the time in our spiritual lives, we know that we ought to be active, but instead we're going to leisure. This week, let's bless somebody. Let's choose active. We can each one do one of those five steps this week and bless the folks that we encounter. Let's stand and worship him right now.